10. My baby is a 10. We dress into the nines. He picked me up at the eight. Oh, wow, I can't do this. It's really good. My baby is a 10. We dress into the nines. He picked me up at eight. Make me feel so lucky. Seven. He kissed me in his six. We be making love in five. Still the one I do this for. I'm trying to make a three from that two. He's still the one. There's up and downs in this low wove. Got a lot to learn in this low wove. Yeah, got a lot to learn still. Episode 10, y'all. Episode 10. Did y'all did y'all clock the countdown? <laughs> Thank you, Beyonce, for this episode's little intro moment. And yeah, I should probably introduce myself and the podcast. Hello. You're listening to Zabuma Foolish with me, Jay, your host. And without wasting any more of your time, let's jump into this week's episode. <laughs> Now, if you're not on the Patreon, I I mean, I don't know what you're doing. Uh, maybe hop on that. But you wouldn't have seen that there's a little bit of an update with uh, the theme song. I know y'all are like, every episode, you're like, what the hell is this sound at the beginning of the episode? Okay, that is uh, my hope, my plan is to make that the actual like outro tune. Um, and the intro is, be- <laughs> is being worked on now, but the artist, Kamau, who um, I'm like working with and collab to get this jingle set up, um, their computer broke and they're also just like doing the most. So they had to unfortunately put a little bit of a postpone on the theme song but no it's on the way it's on the way maybe by episode 12 i'm hoping we'll have it but don't hold me to that uh all right Jalen, focus get into this week's episode episode 10 episode 10 and we are going to be covering some exciting things this episode and the first i mean y'all know if you're listening you're your listeners you already know how it's gonna go we're gonna start off with animal of the week and this week I decided to choose an animal, okay, like a little bit of a backstory. So over on Instagram earlier this, no, last week now, because y'all will be listening to this on Friday, unless you're a patron, which then you're listening to it on Monday, but still last week. Anyway, so last week now, um, a friend, a little internet friend I made, um, their handle is Gotham Taxidermy, and they, okay, y'all, first of all, if you want to just like learn about taxidermy slash that field please go and follow their account like it's they're amazing and I personally was like I didn't know all the intricacies of taxidermy and it's such a great skill to have especially for wildlife educators so yeah, that's my little blurb. But anyway, um, Gotham Taxidermist asked me a question. Uh, or any, her name's Divya. I should have used her real name, lol. Anyway, um, asked me a question on this little survey I was having on Instagram about what bird I would be if I could choose. And I chose a cassowary. And honestly, I don't know where that came from. It kind of like just jumped out of my mind. And I think I chose it because I really vibes with cassowaries. And I just, like, got that sense, like, without even knowing much about the ecology of the bird or the behavior or their sort of evolutionary path. I was just like, I kind of vibes with y'all. Like, I vibes with y'all. And and I did actually have a chance to meet a cassowary in real life when I was in Thailand. And it was a truly magical experience. But if you've never heard of a cassowary before, you're like, what the fuck are you talking about right now? 
all right, all right, girl. I'm gonna give you the rundown. So cassowaries, picture like a gay, flamboyant, like maybe dark, mysterious version of an emu. Yeah, take an emu, add a little bit of, like, queerness to it, and then, you know that drink, like, a dark and stormy? Make it a double, throw it all into a potion, and you'll get a cassowary. And that is, yeah, that's the mental image I need y'all to hold in your mind. They're, yeah, these, like, giant birds, about six feet tall. They have, like, massive, when I say massive claws, like, we're talking five inches. Now, I mean... (laughs) That's not massive in other terms. (laughs) But it's usually just the right amount. Just the right amount to do some damage. And uh, and it holds true for cassowaries as well. They have these two giant five-inch claws on their three-legged or three-fingered toes, I guess you could say. Three-legged legs. Wow. Can you speak today, Jalen? I don't know. We'll find out. And... Yeah, they can actually, like, they have super powerful legs. So it's not just these, like, little claws that you have to watch out for because their legs themselves are, like, mini motors, right? They're out here actually moving. And I was shocked. I had to double-check this when I found this out. But, y'all, they can run at 50 kilometers an hour. That is the speed limit of cars here in Vancouver. And for most cities, actually, is 50 kilometers an hour. Are you kidding me? You're telling me a cassowary can straight up run at the speed limit? I, oof. Oh my goodness. Imagine being in like a field and having one charge you. Ah! That what? That'd be too wild. Although I should, I should note that while they are aggressive and can be rather territorial, the last reported cassowary death was like 1926 so a very long time ago y'all don't need to worry about them like coming up into your space and trying to assassinate you as long as you like treat them with respect and you know don't get up all up into their business another fun fact about cassowaries which is like kind of a gag throwing it back to my history i used to play basketball way back in the day i was like one of those kids who would like be out on the court and there'd be like no mesh and i was literally like with my visor upside down pretending to be like vince carter from the toronto raptors and i really thought that i was going to make it into the nba anyway i used to spend a lot of time jumping and practicing my jumps And apparently cassowaries do the same. Yeah, they can jump like a vertical, like standing, just like straight up standing jump two meters into the air. Y'all, that's taller than me, okay? I'm 6'2". Cassowaries are six feet, so they can jump taller than themselves. It's like that's seven meters into the air, a vertical jump. Oh my gosh, imagine combining, right, this 50-kilometer run with a seven-meter jump. This is... This is why I said I would be a cassowary because that is that is freedom. That is freedom. Imagine running through the forest at 50 kilometers an hour and then just choosing to jump seven feet in the air here and there, landing wherever you might with your giant legs and massive claws. Ooh, that actually sounds like a really fun dream. Like maybe there should be a video game where you get to just be a cassowary. But not all cassowaries are made equal, by the way. Like, I should have noted that probably earlier on in the episode. So 
there are three kind of types of cassowaries. There's the southern cassowary, cassowary, which is the most common, and it's also the biggest. It's found in, like, New Guinea and Australia. Um, and it has a double waddle. Yes, a little... Sorry for that sound into your ears, but that is the sound a waddle helps make. If you have never heard the term waddle before, you've definitely seen it. It's that little, like, scrotum-looking thing um, on the bottom of, like, a turkey. Uh, and cassowaries have it, too. So the southern cassowary has a double waddle, but the northern cassowary, which is smaller, has only a single waddle. <laughs> Lovely. There's also a third type, which is the dwarf cassowary. And that's actually the type of cassowary that I met over in Thailand. Yeah, so apparently what had happened was, so as I was doing this, um, like, work exchange thing, and I was working for this wildlife sanctuary uh, over in Pechamburi, which is, like, maybe two hours south of Bangkok. And they had this little cassowary that was brought to them, like someone just gave it to them when it was in egg form and it hatched and they were like, oh my gosh, what is this dinosaur thing? And then they had to like take care of it. And apparently that's like exotic pets like that are quite common in Thailand because they're seen as like gifts um, and tend to also be linked with spirituality. But I, yeah, we're not commenting on that. That's, we're not in <laughs> What's the Sitch yet, okay? We are just talking about this week's Animal of the Week. Let's keep it light. Let's keep it fun. So, cassowaries as well, what they do, like, what's their whole role in the world? Like, what's their kind of function? Not that you need to have a function in order to have value, because... Gag. You can just be intrinsic, intrinsically valuable, but they do, they have an ecological role. So cassowaries are actually a part of this legacy of like really old giant fruit eaters. So similarly to cassowaries, I mean, the giant ground sloth in the North Americas had a similar function, but they're some of the only individuals who are large enough to eat really large seeding fruit. And so Anything with, like, a really large seed or just, like, a really hard sort of outer body, the cassowary is like, yeah, give it to me. Put it in my stomach. Yum, 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 yum. The gag is they don't digest them that well. And so when they poop, they actually spread the seeds throughout the forest. So they're kind of like these little gardeners going around, adding a little bit of fertilizer, a little bit of seed over here, and making sure that these, like, really rare fruiting trees are continuing, right? And it's really interesting how that kind of reciprocal relationship forms between these animals that are like seed spreaders because yeah, it's it was the same situation for the um pultier uh cultier pines, which is this massive pine tree here in North America and it doesn't have like I mean its range is rather large, but these seeds are super like heavy and they don't just like fly away so everyone's like how the hell did they get such wide dispersal and it was because of giant ground sloths they used to be the only thing that would like chomp 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 on these massive pine cones anyway i'm getting way too off topic uh, a little bit <laughs> in the weeds here and it's almost 10 minutes so i want to like wrap up animal of the week the cassowary also has this giant like it's called a head cast, but it kind of looks like this very bony sort of structure on the top of their head. It's actually made out of a spongy material, and it's then only covered in keratin. So, like, it looks like a bone, but it's it's really not. It's more like a squishy nail. Anyway, um, 
we don't, we have no idea what it's for. We have absolutely no idea what it's for. Cassowaries are not only like very cryptic, so very hard to like study um, in the wild, but they, yeah, we just, a lot of people just don't know about them <laughs> and haven't studied them. And so we don't know if this like head cast thing, this giant like structure on the top of their head, what that's used for is, is the size like a representative of their age or is it a representative of dominance or 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 does it maybe help them with their call? Because the cassowary actually has a very distinct and very kind of like creepy call. I'm actually going to try and play a, uh, a call for you now. So hold up here. Let me just cue up this audio. Okay, I'm going to be pressing play now. And the sound that you're about to hear is the call of a cassowary. As you can hear, it's kind of like a It's like very like guttural, very like low baritone frequencies. And it's it's truly a gag. Like I was I didn't expect them to sound like this. I thought that they would be more of like a cool 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 kind of bird. But no, they out here being like just like out here belching this demonic kind of sound throughout the forest. And that actually helps them because, like, these sort of lower frequency calls move really well through the forest. But again, going back to that, like, giant structure on the top of their head, they may actually use that to make this very distinct call. If y'all don't know, hornbills are another bird that have, like, a weird sort of head structure situation and they use that weird structure to make a very distinct call like if if you have a check it second just go check out hornbill calls um because yeah they make really cool sounds so yeah we need to do some more research into cassowaries what that's all about but the really last thing that i want to mention about cassowaries well i'm really (laughs) i'm really into them evidently we've been talking about them for a while now but last thing is cassowaries are if you see cassowaries with like chicks like their little children that's a single dad yeah i know isn't that so wholesome so apparently the situation with cassowaries is all female cassowaries be out here just like living their best lives in the forest so they'd be running around having like multiple families with different males and then they'll just leave like they will straight up just abandon the father and then they'll be like okay you go raise the kids i'm gonna go have fun i'm gonna go see martha and mary and buy the watering hole and then we're gonna go and find some more people to have kids with and this is also a gag too is like not only are these dads like really great like they are very caring they even play this really wholesome game of like hide and seek with their kids and yeah, if you have a check second, also <laughs> after you look at Hornbill um, calls, go check out Hide and Seek with Cassowary Chicks because it's also very cute. I'll go ahead and actually do all this for you. If you're a patron, I'll just like make sure to like have some videos of this um, for you. But yeah, if you're not a patron, you'll have to do that yourself. Anyway. The thing that I thought was really funny, right, about the situation where the dads will literally be like, okay, um, I guess I'll just raise the kids. And then if they ever see the mom again, y'all, they just run away. Like, they straight up sprint away at full speed. Like, they're terrified. Um, And rightfully so, because apparently anytime a mother comes across one of her families that she's, like, 
you know, helped start and then ran away from, she will attack. Yeah, female cassowaries will attack their old mates and their children because they literally are like, don't remind me of my my mistakes. <laughs> like, okay, maybe that's not what they're saying. Um, but I just thought that was really wild. And I hadn't seen that situation um, in the animal world or haven't read about that um, until cassowaries. So I wanted to bring y'all to that, to the podcast today. But we have... Talked about cassowaries for far too long. Let's jump into experiment six to six. This week's experiment six to six, the paper is called Same Sex Sexual Behavior in Bats. And it was written in 2011 by Marco Ricci. Ricci. R-I-C-C-U-C-C-I. I think it's Italian. Anyway, the abstract for the paper reads as following. So it goes, here we reviewed the available observations on bat homosexual behavior, presenting some behavioral hypotheses. Same-sex same sex sexual behaviors can be classified in six different groups and till now have been documented in 22 species of mega and micro bats. Further investigations are required as many more species are expected to show similar behaviors. Yes, they are, bitch! You better fucking work. I like that they put that in where it's like more work must be done to show that many more species are also gay. <laughs> like, can you say the gay agenda? Because, yes, I like these researchers for doing that. Um, and kind of let's break this down. So this paper was really interesting because it wasn't like your typical research paper, like they weren't um, working with like a population of bats and monitoring their behavior to be like, oh, are they gay? But they were actually more so going through like the, there's a pretty huge body of literature um, just about bats in general that dates back to like the 1800s or so. And yeah, so what this paper did actually was they used these like six uh, I guess, defining characteristics. And they went and tried to find all of the papers, all of the research in which these, like, six um, behaviors were mentioned, right? And then they tried to, like, weave this web of understanding to be like, okay, well, what is the situation um, with homosexuality in bats? And so the six behaviors in question, if you didn't already clock the Instagram post about it, yeah, I'll list them for you here. So the first is mutual homosexual grooming and licking. Yum. Um, homosexual masturbation, which I'm like, is that different from heterosexual masturbation? But okay, go off. The third is homosexual play. Okay. Uh need to define that more. Thank you. And the fourth is homosexual mounting. Okay. Yes, uh, I would consider that to be one. <laughs> uh, coercive sex. So this one is kind of confusing, but we'll talk about that um, a little later on. And then cross-species homosexual sex. So these were the six characteristics. And I know uh, the last two especially, they sound kind of confusing as like, why would those be metrics of same-sex behavior? But they do explain it. Uh, and we'll talk about that. But the next part I want to sort of highlight is all of the papers that they went through and then where they, like, were able to see 
mention of homosexuality in bats, either observed by the researchers or having it actually be like a central part of that research project. And so I think the earliest here, I have the paper pulled up now, and the earliest paper that they... Um, that they were able to get like a observation of homosexuality in bats from was 1896. Y'all, 1896? And that was, that was, so the paper was from Rolinat and Troussart, which were like these bat people, um, they were French. That's about all I can tell you about them, because again, it was 1896. But it was in the wild, which is, that's a gag to me because it's so much harder to do these types of behavioral observation studies in the wild as someone who's just now starting to conduct them with raccoons in urban settings. I can tell y'all, like, this work isn't easy. Also, just time and place. Like, the chances for you to be able to be in the right time and the right place to see this behavior, oof. Yeah, okay. Um, anyway, so they actually had one, two, three, four four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten papers where they were able to see this sort of like homosexuality mentioned in bats. And those ten papers were all from wild observations of bat populations, spanning from, as we said, 1896 all the way through to like 1979. Yeah. So like a lot of bat work has been done. They also have another category here for in captivity, which I think is really interesting, and we'll talk about that a little bit later too. Um, but they only have three papers about uh, that mention homosexuality uh, in bats uh, expressed in captivity. And I really like how there's this part I read here. Let me pull it up, actually. Um, there's this part where they were talking about um, homosexuality and just this type of behavior being observed in the wild. And they make a really interesting mention of how the, uh, a lot of species of bats actually live in sex-segregated camps during non-breeding periods. So essentially from like early September to like early December, depending on the species, they can be seasonally bisexual. And so both sexes actually show like both males and females. I don't know if that's the only sexes available to bats. Maybe more work should be done on intersex bats and EDC, but um, that's not this week's episode. Focus, focus, focus. Okay, so yeah, they mention here that in um, some ways, right, that there's this like sort of seasonal bisexuality that is really frequent, right? And that's expressed when uh, through homosexual grooming. Like the licking situation, which this paper says is more common among males uh, than females, which fair. But observing this type of behavior, collecting this type of data, right, in general, is difficult, right? And it's only going to be made more difficult by the specific ecology of the species in question. So for bats, right, it's made more difficult because they're nocturnal, so they're most active at night where we, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I don't have night vision yet. Um, so that screams low visibility to me. I don't know how all these researchers are out here clocking the behaviors of individual bats in the dark, but okay, go off, sis. And then they also are, they, you have to understand where they live, right? And so by the very nature of their ecology, studying this behavior is really difficult, right? Getting to the caves, getting to the little excavation sites. And so studying captive populations is also a really important way 
of being able to conduct these studies. And that's why they're, as that's the only reason I can still see some value in like zoos and aquariums and sort of these sort of legacies of animal exploitation because we now can use these captive populations to do really important studies, right? And so earlier in this part of the episode, I was talking about how I was like, very interested in the captive observations. And that's just because they make a note here that I think is very important to mention. And that is the same sex sexual behavior is more frequent in captive populations than in wild populations. And the paper says that's maybe because males and females are grouped together by sex um, or in different ways than in the wild. And captive animals can form bonds that are atypical of natural situations. Which, I mean, if you if you just look at most captive animal facilities, that tracks, like that makes sense. Oftentimes, managers, people who are running these facilities will just group all these species by sex because they're like, okay, this is going to make it much easier to manage and move and like feed and do all the yada, yada, yada. And then over time, like obviously these individuals are going to develop bonds, relationships, maybe find a little lover, maybe they experiment, you know, a little bit because of the sexual segregation that we practice in these facilities. But something really crucial, I think, also that this paper touches on, but it doesn't really address is tackling or fighting back against this idea, right, that homosexuality is unnatural and queerness is not natural when it is so commonly reflected in populations of non-human animals, right? And so why, why, let's kind of break that down a little bit. Why is it so that so many researchers, so many people within the scientific community have this idea that homosexuality, one, isn't natural, and two, when it occurs, it, like, it doesn't need to be studied or they don't need to give it time of day. Now, Y'all know I love Darwin, like, Home Skillet did some great stuff, but was also fucking problematic. And so there's, like, this whole aspect of Darwin's, like, theory where homosexuality doesn't fit, right? It doesn't fit his model of evolution because sexual reproduction and fitness should be under his model as, like, one of these motivators, right, for a species, so under the Darwinian model, it's like, well, that doesn't make no sense. Like, there should be no gay animals because it's not evolutionarily advantageous for you to have sex with someone you can't reproduce with. But we need to take a little bit of a macro approach and look at the big picture, right? And there are certain circumstances that homosexual behavior will happen just because of the population's dynamic. So I'm using a lot of big words. What does that essentially mean? Is just if you're, you're, you're in an area where there are not a lot of potential females or maybe there are no females, right? And you're going through the motions, you're feeling all horny, orny, orny. You're like, oof, my gosh, get the juice, juice. Got me and you're feeling your oats, but there ain't no one around. You're going to experiment or interact with what is around you. And so oftentimes, this I think was a, a first observed in like insects, this like idea that it's this absence of suitable partners that results in this like same-sex behavior. But we know that this isn't always the case because research has been done 
that looks at same-sex behavior in populations that have equal members like and access to equal members of both female and, and and males right and so even in the presence of you know quote unquote suitable reproductive partners you still have the occurrence of same sex behaviors but what i actually want more research into what i want to see studied more is if homosexual behavior, if this same-sex behavior can actually lead to increased reproductive fitness in some cases, right? So is it is are there some populations, are there some species where practicing same-sex behavior actually increases their fitness, actually increases the chances of them being able to reproduce and um, rear offspring and what have you? And the only like specific example of this that can immediately come to mind is I'm thinking about um, swans, black swans specifically, but swans generally, like apparently it's a super common now where it's like one in three or one in six. I don't have the numbers. Again, I'm not a birder, but apparently, yes, very common now where male swans will like shack up with, well, what they'll shack up with like a female swan until the eggs are laid and then they'll kick her out of the nest and be like, JK, lol, no, these are our kids now. And then that will obviously then lead the female swan to like go and reproduce and try and get like another fam going. So you have like an influx or an increase in the population because of this sort of nest stealing homosexual behavior that is happening in the swan population. So it's like, okay, are there lines to be drawn here? Are there threads that we can connect between how populations shift and change and grow because of homosexual behavior? That's what I'm really curious about. Now, I, I kind of, I'm sorry, I, I do want to wrap up this section. I feel like we have been in it a little long. But I did, y'all, do y'all ever do this thing where you'll be like, and we'll talk about this soon. Oh my gosh, <laughs> not me imitating taste from you K's, RuPaul's, Drag Race. That's a story for another time. That's a story for another time. <laughs> I am the worst at saying that. So I'm going to actually try and <laughs> just keep to my word. And I'm going to quickly touch upon um, how, wh what their sort of comments were um, about coercive sex and cross-species. Um, homosexual sex as metrics of same-sex behaviors in bats. And they talk about it in their discussion section. So in their discussion section, they essentially say that they are only using this as a metric because it's been used as metrics in the past, which honestly is such a problem I have with science in general. It's just like, oh my gosh, well, this is the way it's always been done. It's like, okay, bits, it doesn't make sense to fucking take it out, like... In like in this paper, right? They even go. They they have a line here where it goes. Let me let me get it for y'all. They're like combining sexual intercourse with violent assault, while these observations of like force sex among animals are not controversial. Their interpretation is debated. So in the past, right, like this coercive sex has been used to sort of make the case for sexual dominance, which I guess could be tied to same-sex relationships. But I think that's rather tenuous, the connection, and I wouldn't have included it in my research paper. But they decided to because 
there were all these other research papers from like the 60s going back all the way to up to like what 2003 I think they have where it was using this coercive sex as one of these metrics so they included it And the last thing I will mention is why they brought up that kind of like cross species sex. And yeah, it they even make a note in the paper. They have it here. I'm reading it out um, from their discussion section. It says, even less is known um, for the meaning of cross species sex. Sometimes animals harass other animals from the same or closely related species for sex. So as an example, an Arctic fur seal was observed while attempting to have sex with a king, parent, a king penguin on Marion Island uh, back in 2008. And so the paper essentially just is like, well, maybe the sea t seal's predatory impulse had been redirected into sexual arousal, or it was a sexual manifestation of the play instinct of seals. But uh, even the paper, right, says that this isn't really like a strong metric to apply to all species. Just because you observed one male seal trying to have sex with a male penguin doesn't mean that cross-species same-sexual behavior is now, like, the standard we should be using, right? But I really, I'm going to wrap this up here because I really, I really like the way that this paper sort of ends their discussion. And they, they end it on this note here that considering the pervasive presence of homosexuality throughout the animal kingdom, same-sex partnering must be an adaptive trait. Ah! I love that. So just going to reword that for y'all. Essentially, they're just saying that because so many animals are gay, that the, there must be some evolutionary advantage right, to being gay. There must be some sort of adaptive capacity that actually has a benefit to the individual for being gay. And then they end a little note by being like, and that's why more research must be done on gay behavior in animals. So I was like, yes! Uh, exactly, 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 exactly. Which is why I'll be looking into same-sexual behavior of raccoons and coyotes here in Vancouver. And that's it. That's Experiment 626. We are going to get into what, 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 what's the sitch? So what's the sitch? For this week, sit, sit, wow, nope, not, not words, not English. <laughs> For this week's What's the Sitch, we're headed to Namibia. That's right. That's right. The country in southern Africa that is just to the left of Botswana. 
uh, has a beautiful little lovely long coastline there. It's actually right underneath Angola. Maybe that might help you position it a little bit more. It does touch tips as well with Zimbabwe and Zambia, so... But this is not a GPS section. I'm not a geographer. This is not Geography Podcast 101. So if you don't know where Namibia is, maybe you're a little bit racist. Maybe go fucking find out. Anyway, um, let's get into this week's what's the sitch. Sorry, coming in hot and heavy for y'all. Ooh, yes. So I came across this article um, when I was doing research for this week's episode, and it was really interesting because it was the it was like a government actually taking a position, a very strong stance on tackling human wildlife conflict, right? Which is, I mean, it's all of what this section of the podcast is about. And so, yeah, I kind of want to just break down the story, talk a little bit about my concerns. Um, with this whole sort of situation. So the Ministry of Environment uh, in Namibia, so it's the Ministry of Environment, Forestry, and Tourism, they actually just released this plan. Um, if you're listening to this, it would have been last week now, uh, so like the week of March 15th. And so they released this plan um, to implement like really specific mitigation and preventative measures against human wildlife conflicts following daily reports of damage caused by animals, particularly elephants in various parts of the country. And I mean, so I was reading this and I was like, oh, I am working with human wildlife conflicts on the scale of raccoons and coyotes. Very manageable in my opinion. So to bring now this sort of framework of conflict management out to a much, much, much larger animal like an elephant sounds extremely challenging, right? And it is. So the environment minister, um, Puhame, Puhamba, sorry, I should really freaking pronounce the people's names correctly, Puhamba Shifeta, uh, they told the National Assembly on uh, last week, Wednesday, right, that there has been ongoing reports of destruction to crops, water infrastructure and property damage, right, by elephants mainly. And if you haven't uh, clocked, I mean, it's hard to keep up with everything in the world, so no worries. But there's uh, currently a drought in um, the Kunin region. So this has actually just made the situation much, much worse. And as elephants and predators, like, they're largely responsible for most of these instances of human-wildlife conflict in the country. So the ministries are they're mainly trying to um, reduce the destruction, the amount of times that animals have to be destroyed, right, because of these conflicts. Now, I really, I don't like that we use this term, like that's the industry standard for when we talk about euthanizing or intentionally killing an animal. We use the word destruction, but it's very, very, very common practice for uh, managing human-wildlife conflict. And especially here in Canada, like, if you need any evidence of that, just Google BC bear, black bear conflicts. It's, like, the amount of black bears that get killed or destroyed, I should say, um, because they have been habituated to human dwellings or there have been, like, a direct instance of violence or maybe, like, a little bit more exploratory and risky behavior, what have you. And so people will just go in, bam, kill it. And I really, really like that the government and the minister specifically has taken this stance, this approach of being like, no, we're actually trying to reduce the amount of destructions that have to be approved. 
So what are what are what are, what are some of their strategies for managing this conflict? You say, like, what what do you think is happening? Well, apparently, um, they're going to be moving a bunch of the elephants around. Yeah, so they're at this stage now of like setting like discussions and negotiation of contracts, but the elephant population in like specific hotspots for conflicts will they're going to reduce it. So they're trying to minify this conflict. Um, by reducing the actual size of the elephant population in these sort of hotspot problematic areas. So not only are they going to like reduce the size of these groups in these like hotspot areas, but they actually plan to capture several of them and relocate them to national parks or just uh, more general areas where they cannot cause these types of problems. And then lastly, they're going to be collaring, actually, uh, several of them and monitoring them in order to be able to alert communities and farmers specifically of their presence, right? And I think this is – these are really, really good strategies um, from kind of like a human point of view because they really – like the fact that you're going to be giving communities and farmers access directly um, – to like these potential conflicts when they're you know close by through this like radio collaring method, um, and the fact that you're going to be like separating them, bringing them to new spaces, new habitats, um, where they can't do this damage to human establishments, human environments, and humans more generally. I think that that those are like they're not bad solutions. They're really they're they're not. Um, Especially compared to destruction, I would much rather have these solutions over the animals being euthanized. But, right, I mean, the behavioralist and cognitive sort of specialist in me can't help but be like, all right, well, are these decisions being made with the full range of knowledge that we have about elephants? Specifically about their behavior, about how they socialize, right, about their cognitive capacities. And so if we aren't including these metrics in our management strategies, then they're actually, in my opinion, they're only serving human communities and they're not they're not benefiting the animal in question. They're not actually serving to create a culture of coexistence if we don't actually consider the individuality of the species that we're trying to manage, right? And so what, do, what am I talking about here specifically for elephants? Well, we know that elephants are extremely social. Like, they have huge families. Their memory is amazing. They can remember, like, individuals. Even after years of not seeing each other, they have really specific practices. And there's even some study to suggest that animals are spiritual or they practice some form of spirituality because multiple herds have been seen waving like sticks in the air during full moons. Um, and so there has been a lot of studies to look into, do elephants worship the moon? Question mark. But anyway, this is all adds right to, to the, the fabric that is, elephants' identity and the complexity of, of their social groups, right? And so if you then don't take that into consideration, right, in your planning, 
Well, what's that, what's that going to have? What impact is that going to have on the individual, right? So when you remove an elephant, right, from a, 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 or maybe a couple elephants from the main group because the main group in this hotspot is causing too much problems. So you just cherry pick a couple individuals and you move them out to different spaces. Well, we know that elephants can get depressed, right? And we know that elephants are extremely emotionally developed, right? They have like very, very intense emotional responses. And so I think it's a little bit cruel, in my opinion, to take such a socially conscious species and just separate them willy-nilly, you know? I think that that is a little bit cruel, but again, is it... It's sometimes we're put in these situations where it's we have to choose between the lesser of two evils, and it's what's more cruel, right? Is it this form of separation or is it death? And I don't know. I don't know. Is it because ultimately have we studied what happens to depressed elephants who are separated from their herds? Do we know if that depression then leads to, you know, starvation and a situation where the elephant is then then will die anyways? Because if that is the case, then these solutions are then that isn't a solution, right? Because it's identical to the problematic solution, which was destruction. And so we need to make sure that we're following through with our metrics of success. How are we actually monitoring and tracking the success of these wildlife conflict solutions, right? And that involves actually considering the individual in question, right? As an individual and not just like as this collective sort of species or group that you have to try and manage. Why I'm also um, a little bit concerned, and I'm going to wrap this up too because I kind of can ramble about elephants forever, but I, why I'm also a little bit concerned with this strategy as opposed to others is because it is so invasive, right? It is so directly involving ourselves into the lives of these animals in a way that we're asking them not to do for us. So I think it's like very interesting that we aren't even taking more like passive or remote approaches to managing this conflict um, here in Namibia. And we're just doing like the sort of direct hands-on method. And again, trying to incorporate what we know about elephant behavior, about cross-species relationships, right? We know, we have the data. We know that elephants are extremely terrified of bees, like extremely terrified of bees to the point where they will like reroute entire like travel routes to avoid bees. And when bees happen, like they will, they will just freak out, right? And so maybe there is an opportunity there to work with engineers to develop, you know, um, a soundscape of bees or of a swarm of bees near these uh, con conflict hotspots or near farmers or near specific things that you are trying to protect, right? And in doing so, bam, maybe you just collar the elephant once the collar comes within a certain distance of, you know, this bee speaker, bam, the soundscape then activates, it sounds like there's a swarm of bees, elephants are deterred. Cool, right? That could be a potential solution. Again, you have to do more research into that, but there are ways of incorporating the data that we have about species to actually develop more authentic conflict management strategies, right? Another potential one that, again, just off the top of my head I'm thinking about is because this, this research paper was looking into um, if, and if elephants are able to recognize 
individual humans by their voice and if they're able to recognize um, sort of energy or tones, right? And so the study looked into playing um, on really loud speakers for a herd of elephants, two sounds. One was like a sound of like tourists and the other was like a sound of hunters and poachers. Um, just talking, literally just talking. It wasn't like any gunshots. It wasn't any like camera clicks or tour sounds. It was literally just them talking. And guess what? The elephants were always very cautious, very concerned, very trepidatious, very like, ooh, 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 not going to go here whenever the sounds of hunters and poachers were played. But when tourists were played, they would just continue out their business, like no problem, right? So maybe there's even the potential there in, in using our understanding of fear and being like, okay, there's an option here that maybe is less directly impactful on your day-to-day -day life, that we can maybe use soundscapes as a deterrent, right? Whew, that's just my thoughts, this is my ramblings. That is actually all I have to say for this week. We're wrapping up a lovely episode 10. And uh, I'll see you next week for episode 11. As always, you can, you know, join me over on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash jauntingj. And there always will be, you know, resources for each episode there, um, links to the actual research papers that I mentioned, as well as just, like, extra content for y'all to, like, consume, enjoy, love, love, love. Um, if you don't want to do the Patreon thing, totally fine. Head over to the Instagram. That is Instagram.com slash jauntingj or just jauntingj if you have the app. Jauntingj, I should say. And, yeah, thank you for listening and supporting, and I'll catch you all next week. Bye.